Welcome to Handmade Humanity, a podcast dedicated to helping you build the judgment, dexterity, and care necessary for education. I'm Austin Hoffman. This, today I would like to look at one of Shakespeare's famous plays, Henry V. I'll start by reading uh, four lines from the prologue. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Uh, this is one of Shakespeare's more well-known plays. Uh, it's not only for the prologue, but also for the famous St. Crispin's Day speech, which occurs uh, later on in the play. Uh, it concerns Henry V, uh, one of the, the kings of England, uh, who uh, participated in and uh, reinvigorated um, the Hundred Years' War between England and France. Now, getting into the play, there's there's some historical background that's helpful to know in order to understand what's going on with Henry and exactly the question that he's facing and that Shakespeare is are, is considering in his play. And we, in order to understand that, we have to go back uh, a few plays actually, and also a few kings. Henry V is the fourth in a tetralogy, a series of four historical plays. Uh, Shakespeare uh, wrote uh, a few of these, uh, these these collections of four plays. The first of this tetralogy is Richard II, um, and immediately this thrusts us into the problem of succession and, and kingship. Uh, Richard II became king after his father, Edward IV, and his grandfather, Edward III, died. Uh, he was next in line to the throne, and so he ascended to the crown, uh, but he was only 10 years of age. So the kingdom during that time was largely managed by his uncles, uh, John of Gaunt and Gloucester. Um, you have to remember that this time period uh, is only about 200 years or so after the Magna Carta. Uh, and so th the king is not necessarily the strongest figure in England. Uh, he has to manage and curry the favor of his nobles. Uh, there are courtiers, there are intrigues and plots and, and backstabbing uh, and negotiations and treaties. And it's a very messy business. Uh, so Richard II uh, becomes king formally, yet uh, two nobles, John of Gaunt and Gloucester, his uncles, are largely in control of the kingdom. Uh, now, John of Gaunt is, is kind of a, a mixed character. Uh, he he's, does some things well. He, he seems uh, uh, sinister at other times. Uh, but after his death, um, Richard actually disinherited John's son, Henry of Bolingbrook, and exiles him. Um, now, Richard is, is about 30 years old at the time, perhaps. Uh, he's just coming into his own as a king, uh, starting to throw off some of the uh, restraint and um, guidance of his uncles. Uh, and he, he got into a bit of trouble with, with the peasants and with other nobles, and they didn't like him very much. Um, yet anyways, he disinherits Henry Bolingbrook, the son of John, uh, and he exiles him. Uh, this would be uh, his cousin. Henry uh, then returns with a small army. Uh, he gains the support of others, uh, key nobles and, and others that are uh, upset with Richard for his uh, reign, and they depose Richard II, and they th throw him in prison. Uh, and Henry assumes the crown himself and takes the name Henry IV. So we have this problem where... A, a noble, a, a cousin of the legitimate king, overthrows him. He comes to power illegitimately and puts the, the rightful king in prison. Uh, and it's, it's, there's some murky circumstances surrounding uh, Richard II's death, but it's possible that Henry was essentially starving him to death. Um, now, Henry uh, does have some claim to the throne. Uh, after all, his uh, father um, is a brother of Edward IV, 
Uh, so we have Edward IV, uh, of whom Richard II is the son. Um, John of Gaunt was Edward IV's younger brother. Uh, and so Henry is in the line of succession, but Richard II uh, obviously had that claim first. And this claim uh, to ki the throne and to kingship looms large over Henry V. After all, he has to wrestle with the fact that his father came to power illegitimately, and perhaps he is not uh, the rightful heir to the throne. Uh, another uh, piece of historical background that's necessary to understand is, is the Hundred Years' War. And again, this has to do with the problem of succession. Um, but before talking about the Hundred Years' War, I need to go back in history even further. Uh, the Battle of Hastings in 1066 was when William of Normandy, uh, a French noble, crossed the English Channel uh, and essentially took an army of a few thousand soldiers and conquered uh, England and proclaimed himself king. So now we have a situation where there is an English king who is also a French noble. Uh, he is at once a vassal to the French king, but at the same time, he's the king of an independent nation. And so there is this, this set of competing interests uh, going back and forth between uh, his two roles as both a noble and a vassal, as well as a king of a nation. Well, we, we fast forward to roughly um, you know, 400 years from there, and we have a problem with the succession of the French crown. For when Charles IV of France died, he left no surviving male heir. Uh, he had a younger, uh, his, his older brothers had already been king and had died. Uh, they had no male heirs as well. And so we are left with um, Isabella, uh, the sister of Charles IV. Now, Isabella, to make things more complicated, was married to Edward II, King of England. Now, they actually had a son, Edward III, as we've, we've mentioned before. Now, normally, that would mean that Edward III was ascends to the throne of France when Charles, upon Charles's death. Uh, after all, he is in the, the line uh, through his mother of the French monarchy. Yet, of course, the French look at that and they don't like it very much. And so through some legal maneuvering and through some antique laws, they appeal to the Salic laws, uh, which say that a female cannot inherit the crown or title, nor can she pass it on to her male heir. And so instead, the French choose uh, Philip, who is the uh, uh, patrilineal cousin of Charles IV. And Philip becomes the French king instead of Edward. Naturally, this doesn't sit too well with Edward, uh, who immediately leads a campaign into France to begin reclaiming some of those uh, French territories that the English crown had once hold, although had lost. Um, and he is very successful. Uh, he retakes French lands, uh, namely Normandy would be probably the, the most uh, preeminent of those. Uh, he negotiates a very favorable treaty with the, France, uh, with the French uh, and uh, essentially decides to relinquish his claim on the French crown in exchange for, for all of these other benefits that he's able to get. Fast forward to Henry V. And Henry uh, decides to re-embark on this claim of the French crown. To give you the family history one more time, uh, Henry V is son of Henry IV, son of John of Gaunt, uh, son of Edward III, who originally uh, launched this campaign. So uh, Henry is essentially carrying out the same actions as his, his uh, uh, great-great-grandfather, I believe it would be. So he embarks on this claim of the French crown. He leads a campaign over into uh, France. He conquers a few cities and then prepares to meet the French at the Battle of Agincourt. 
Uh, the English are, this is a very famous battle, both in history, uh, as well as the uh, romanticiza romanticization of Shakespeare, where the English are vastly outnumbered, uh, yet they are able to win a significant victory at the battle. Um, Henry then negotiates a, a treaty and marriage with France through the Princess Catherine, making him, in the process, heir to the French crown. However, before the current French king can die, or, yeah, die, and Henry V ascend to the throne, uh, Henry V dies, leaving his son, uh, who is very young, uh, Henry VI, uh, as the heir to the English crown. Um, unfortunately, Henry VI has no knack or taste for military prowess, and the, the Hundred Years' War quickly reignites uh, through uh, Joan of Arc and some other successful uh, French so this is the the setting of the play. This is the background and main plot of the play. It's it's following Henry's um, attempt to retake the French crown, and one of the the big questions that's looming over this this play is the problem of succession. For if Henry the Fourth took the throne by force, is Henry the Fifth the legitimate ruler, uh, or is there a closer relative uh, of Richard the Second that that has a better claim to the English throne? And if Henry V is questioning his own right to the English throne, what right does he have to then look across the channel at France and consider his claim to the French throne? And how do we sort out these problems of succession? This is uh, one of the great problems of history, is that succession is hard. Uh, succession is difficult. Even if the rules are in place and the uh, standard and process is clear, uh, it can be a messy business trying to uh, find a, a leader that can either take up the mantle uh, of his father or of his predecessor, uh, or even uh, an interloper that comes along and tries to insert himself. And then as you move a few generations down the line, do you try and go back and untangle that to the way it should have been, as opposed to the way it, it is? And this immediately uh, comes up in the, the opening act of the play, where we are uh, introduced to the uh, Bishop of Canterbury and Ely, who are discussing uh, a bill that has just come to the House of Commons uh, that would strip the church of lands and money. Of course, they don't like that. Uh, and they also are discussing uh, the, the legitimacy of Henry's claim. And essentially, they, they seem to decide that uh, we want to support Henry in his quest to reclaim French lands because it would, it would help us. Perhaps he would be more kind to us. Perhaps it would enlarge our purse with uh, having more French uh, territories. Um, and so the question looms large whether Henry actually believes their reasons uh, or if he's just looking for an excuse uh, for revenge. Um, what are Henry's motiva motivations? And is this claim to succession, succession legitimate? We see Henry in a, a moment of uh, questioning uh, later on in the play in, in Act 4 uh, where he retreats by himself before this monumentous Battle of Agincourt and he starts considering essentially this, this question. Uh, Upon the king, let us our lives, our souls, our debts, our careful wives, our children, and our sins lay on the king. We must bear all. O oh, hard condition, twin born with greatness, subject to the breath of every fool, whose sense no more can feel but his own ringing. What infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy, and what have kings that privates have not too? Save ceremony. Save general ceremony. And what art thou, thou idle ceremony? What kind of god art thou that sufferest more of mortal griefs than do thy worshippers? What are they rents? What are they comings in? 
O ceremony, show me but thy worth. And here he essentially we see Henry reflecting that what is the difference between the king and the common man uh, but this, this ceremony, this uh, combination of place and degree and form which creates awe and fear in other men. Yet the only thing that sets him apart is this ceremony. Is that enough to make a king? I, I find it's uh, always uh, interesting to reflect with students this this problem of sorting out succession. What differentiates a king uh, from a, a either a noble or a, a common man? Uh, what makes Henry's claim to the throne legitimate? If his father took the throne illegitimately, should Henry abdicate? Um, if he has questions about his uh, English claim, what basis does he have for the French claim? Um, perhaps you might take the, the other side, uh, because although there seems to be some ulterior motives for the church bishops, uh, they do make some legitimate arguments. For uh, They argue that the uh, Salic law uh, doesn't apply to the French because uh, it wasn't devised for French lands, and they, the French didn't actually possess French lands uh, except for 400 years uh, after the creation of this law. Further, uh, these bishops point out that King Pepin uh, and Hugh Capet and King Louis IX um, all claimed their titles through the female. And so even in the French monarchy, uh, these, these great kings of, of the French past uh, claim their titles through the female line, and so what basis do they have to deny it to Edward or to Henry uh, because they are claiming it through Isabella? And these are all questions that uh, are, are great to discuss with students, great to consider as you, you read Shakespeare's play. Uh, what are What is the legitimate claim of succession? Who, who really gets to be in charge? Uh, and succession can at times be a messy business. Uh, another uh, question I like to consider with, with students or, or um, think about early on is that the bishops in the first scene are also discussing Henry's sudden transformation. Uh, if you have read... Uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, or Henry the the Fourth, Part Two. We are exposed to a very different Henry, or or Hal, as he's called then. Uh, he's quite wild. He's rowdy. He is uh, rioting. He is uh, in the tavern all the time. He has a, a, some drinking buddies, Bardolph, and especially John Falstaff, uh, and they're constantly playing these practical jokes, blowing off responsibility, um, and no one is really excited about Hal. Uh, inheriting the throne or, or coming to power because he's he's a he's a rebel he's he's irresponsible no one really trusts him and yet the bishops are discussing that uh, the sudden transformation that has occurred uh, to henry the courses of his youth promised it not the breath no sooner left his father's body than that his wildness mortified in him seemed to die too Yea, at that very moment, consideration like an angel came and whipped the fending Adam out of him, leaving his body as a paradise to envelop and contain celestial spirits. Never was such a sudden scholar made. Never came reformation in a flood with such a heady current scouring faults. Nor never hydra-headed willfulness so soon did lose his seat. And all at once, as in this king. Hear him but reason and divinity, and all admiring with an inward wish you would wish desire the king were made a prelate. Hear him debate of commonwealth affairs. You would say it hath been all in all his study. List his discourse of war, and you shall hear a fearful battle rendered you in music. Turn him to any cause of policy. The Gordian knot of it he will unloose. Familiar as his garter, 
that when he speaks, the air, a chattered libertine, is still, and mute wonder lurketh in men's ears to steal his sweet and honeyed sentences. And this is a shock to everyone who has known Henry uh, as he was in his, in his youth. Um, even the French prince is going to send him a, a uh, treasure of tennis balls to, to mock the, the new king. Essentially saying, stick to your games, kid. This is this is men's work. Uh, we know your character. We know that you are off gallivanting and refuse to take responsibility. And now you want to, to play a monarch. You know, just, just stick to tennis. Um, so the question before us is, do people change like that? Uh, can we expect or look for this sudden and miraculous uh, change as seems to be evidenced in, in Henry? Um, oftentimes... Uh, when we are younger, we like to think that, oh, when I'm older, I'll take responsibility. Uh, or that when we turn 18 or when we turn 22 or 25, suddenly then uh, we'll be mature. Then we can uh, take things seriously. Then we can devote ourselves to uh, study or work or industry or whatever it happens to be. Uh, that suddenly you reach a certain age in appreciating art or music uh, or literature or beauty becomes easy for you. That's uh, if we are talking about spiritual disciplines such as prayer or the reading of scripture, uh, that these things will suddenly become uh, natural and easy. Yet, I think there's more going on with, with Henry, and I think there's, there's more going on with uh, changes or transformations growing to maturity. For even in Henry IV, uh, Shakespeare puts in Henry's words uh, uh, some quiet um, calculations, uh, some determinations, and some plans. For as he departs from his drinking buddies, he explains what he's doing, what he's planning. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please him again to be himself, being wanted, he may be war wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. Like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering o'er my faults shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. So essentially, Henry is, is saying that he's planning this to show uh, that when he becomes king, when he takes off the mask, uh, he can dazzle and... Uh, cause all who see him to wonder at this transformation. Yet, this is something deliberate. This is a, de uh, a carefully chosen tact that he's taking uh, so that uh, he will bedazzle those that, that consider him. This isn't really the, the sudden change where in, uh, receiving the crown uh, made him somebody different than he already was, uh, but this is his plan all along. And I think it's, it's wise to point students to this or to consider this yourself, that uh, if we would like to change, if we would like to grow in responsibility or in some uh, discipline or activity, uh, there's no magic age where it becomes easy. There's no sudden switch that we can throw that uh, makes enjoying Shakespeare easy. Uh, but instead, it takes a long practice and a, a habit and a discipline that day after day as we, we struggle to build that habit, uh, it can it can develop and it can grow into something greater than what it was when it first began. 
But I think we should caution ourselves and and uh, those who are younger than us uh, against expecting these sudden sorts of transformations that these these sudden um, new positions or ages can can change us. Another question I like to to post to students is in the prologue to Act Two, as Henry has decided to embark on his campaign to France. He is called the mirror of all Christian kings. Now, on first glance, this seems a high praise for Henry, that he is the model. He is the uh, correct image of what a Christian king should be like. Yet a, a mirror also has another sense, for in a mirror, we not only see a reflection, but we also see the opposite, as it is mirrored. What is right becomes left. What is left becomes right. There are two readings or two visions of Henry that we could come to as we read through the play. There is the one that is bloodthirsty, that is cruel, villainous, uh, eager to uh, make any claim he can upon the, the French territories and crown, whether or not it's legitimate. The other Henry is kind yet stern, uh, righteous, just, careful, although he uh, is Harsh in his words, he, he is harsh in order to secure mercy. And there are these two different visions of Henry uh, throughout the play. And depending on which Henry you think you have, whether you have the tyrant or whether you have the Christian king, it causes you to read his, his main speeches very differently. If you think that he's a tyrant, when he stands before Harflor and uh, makes these warnings and threats of uh, the the maidens of Harflor being raped and their infants spitted on pikes and their old men killed, uh, he is a tyrant just making these these absolutely bloodthirsty threats. If you think that he is a, a Christian king, you would read those same words as not a, a threat, uh, but a calculated uh, warning in order to secure their surrender and avoid bloodshed. If you think he is a tyrant, his uh, explosion at the gift of the tennis balls from the the French prince um, is just someone losing his temper uh, essentially getting mad at a practical joke and and blowing up if you think he is a a tyrant then the the trick or the the trap that he pulls on the the three traitors uh, uh Scroop and Marsham um in Cambridge is is cruel uh, why not just say so openly uh, that that he knows their plots. Uh, why put them through this this game? Um, he plays a game with his soldiers later on uh, where he is in disguise and incognito and essentially makes a wager with them. Uh, but when they discover that they've actually wagered against the king, uh, their life is, is forfeit, yet Henry and uh, you know forgives them and gives them grace, but yet it still would come across as a cruel, practical joke. Um, Yet on the other hand, if you think that he's a, a Christian king, uh, all of these things are are fitting, that he is just playing a, a game with his soldiers and, and has no intention of actually harming them, uh, that he actually is offering mercy to the three traitors uh, before killing them, um, and had they responded differently, they may have spared their lives. Um, that his response to the, the uh, treasure box of the tennis balls is quite natural for... Um, he's been insulted by a foreign dignitary. And so he, he can respond in kind, and uh, there is no uh, nothing wrong uh, with his response. It's quite natural. 
And so we have these two different Henrys to, to read throughout the play. Um, now, my personal reading is that Henry is actually a, a good king and a righteous king. Um, and uh, all of the alternatives that I've just proposed for those, those various um, sections uh, would be my personal position. Um, and that's because I think what Shakespeare is pointing out in this play is that Henry... Uh, through his word, is able to reform and rule his kingdom, and that he is not primarily ruling with the sword uh, or with might, but it is through his words that he is able to shape and refashion uh, what his rule is like. And so I'd like to, to point out a number of situations where this is, is happening. Uh, the first is Act 1 and Scene 2, uh, with the where he's responding to the gift of the tennis balls. And I think Shakespeare just has some marvelous wordplay uh, on Henry's lips as he's responding to this gift. Uh, to begin, he says, We are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us. His present and your pains we thank you for. When we have matched our rackets to these balls, we will in France, by God's grace, play a set, shall strike his father's crown into the hazard. Tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases. And in those uh, five or so lines, uh, notice how many... Uh, allusions to this tennis match that uh, Shakespeare is working in. Uh, they have the rackets. They have the set played in France. They have the courts of France. Uh, they have the hazard, uh, which are, are these these um, holes uh, in a, a short wall at the ends of the court that uh, the, the players were trying to strike the ball through, uh, that they has made a match with such a wrangler uh, that the chases, uh, again, and he's using all of these um, images and metaphors in his response to this this gift but then later on he also uh, begins to imitate the sound of a tennis match with a repeated word uh, see if you can hear that as i as i read this section um, and tell the pleasant prince this mock of his has turned his balls to gunstones and his soul shall stand sore charged for the many uh, for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with them for many a thousand widows shall this his mock mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down, and some are yet ungotten and unborn that shall have cause to curse the Dolphon's scorn. And that repeated word, mock, uh, you can almost hear the sound of the racket striking the ball. Uh, if you've ever watched a tennis bat match, that, that sort of mock, mock, mock sound as the, the ball is struck back and forth. And he puts this into a word so that as... Uh, you are hearing the play read aloud. You can hear this tennis match. Uh, and this is going to be the, the metaphor for the war on France. Of course, we have Henry's uh, great speech in Act 3, uh, Scene 1, uh, urging his soldiers onto uh, Hoffleur and into this French castle. Uh, once more into the breach. Dear friends, once more, or close up the wall with our English dead. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. Then lend the eye a terrible aspect. Let it pry through the portage of the head like a brass cannon. Let the brow o'erwhelm it as fearfully as doth a galled rock overhang and juddy his confounded base, swilled with the wild and wasteful ocean. And if you were sitting uh, by Henry as he's giving this speech, perhaps you would feel inspired to rush into this, this castle and to risk your life and to uh, dive into the gap in the wall. Uh, and he continues on 
and it's it's a testament to his his real power. Uh, his power is is not so much in his arm or in his sword, but in his ability to motivate and stir up his his men. Uh, just a few scenes later, he's going to speak before the town and, and give an absolutely uh, horrific picture of what may happen uh, should they choose to uh, continue to fight. And through his word, um, through this speech he gives, he is able to secure their surrender and so save the, their lives and save the lives of his soldiers. And I think this is a, something to watch as you're, you're reading or, or watching the play is how often Henry turns to his words to secure his will. Uh, he turns to his words to create and imagine a new reality. Uh, and that unfolds before him as he speaks. I think it's worth contemplating that as Shakespeare is wielding his magic with, with words, uh, how much of an impact that words have on reality. They have the ability to, to change things, uh, not in a sort of uh, magical or mystical way, uh, but declarations matter. Uh, that these great speeches from either Henry V or from Winston Churchill or, or Cicero or Demosthenes or the other great orators of history have the ability to change the attitudes and emotions and thoughts and actions of a man. And that's a tremendous power. When the judge sits in the courtroom and declares guilty or not guilty, he is shaping a new legal reality for the defendant. Uh, when the minister pronounces uh, uh, man and wife, husband, uh, man and woman, husband and wife, he is proclaiming and declaring a new reality. And, and by that declaration, something new is created. And I, I think it's worth paying attention and contemplating the power that words have to uh, shape reality. I want to close with um, perhaps Henry's most famous speech, the Crispin's Day speech where before the Battle of Agincourt, where these poor English are vastly outnumbered, uh, they are outclassed in every conceivable way. Uh, the French have far more wealth. Uh, they have far more knights and, and expensive suits of armor. And the English are sort of this ragtag band. Um, the French the night before have spent uh, their nights in these fine tents while the English are, are shivering um, out on the cold ground and in far poorer conditions. Um, Henry uh, begins this speech when he hears his cousin Westmoreland wish, oh, I wish we had more men here. And this quickly sets Henry off in the famous St. Crispin's Day speech. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will. I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not at my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. Though faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace I would not lose so great an honor as one man more, methinks, would share with me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. 
This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes home safe will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves a curse they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap while as any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. And you can almost uh, picture the applause that would erupt from the, the English crowd watching this. Uh, you know, perhaps if you've been in a movie theater uh, during some particularly uh, momentous and, and powerful scene when all of a sudden the, the entire theater uh, just erupts spontaneously. Uh, that's really the, the situation that, that's happening with this rousing speech as the, the English are going to uh, begin this battle with the French. Of course, they are successful uh, in that battle. Uh, the historical um, detail of the longbow, uh, the, the English are able to simply decimate the French armies. Uh, yet in Shakespeare's vision, uh, it is Henry's words that are able to arouse and stir up his soldiers to fight with greater vigor than they would have uh, had they not had their king there with them. I hope this encourages you to take up the, the play. Henry V uh, gives you some ideas and uh, questions to consider as you read it. Uh, the BBC, I believe, uh, put together a production of actually this tetralogy as well as the... Um, uh, following Tetralogy, uh, so the Hollow Crown series, I believe there's a part one and two, uh, it, that would be a, a, a collection of all of these plays that I would, I would heartily recommend. Uh, they're very well uh, produced and, and done and, and uh, fairly close to Shakespeare's um, written uh, play. Um, Henry V in this version is played by Tom Hiddleston. Uh, and the, the other one that I greatly enjoyed would be Richard III with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, so I hope this inspires you to take up Henry V to find an addition to watch. And please join me next time uh, for Handmade Humanity. <laughs>